When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome everyone to Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess and I am Dr. Caroline Leaf and I am so excited about today. I'm so excited I'm talking to Foss because I'm talking, going to be talking to a fellow neuroscientist, Dr. Mishi Jha, who is phenomenal. The work that she has done has changed and helped so many people. When it comes to understanding attention, you are a leader in the world. When it comes to understanding how to manage high stress situations, you're phenomenal. So I just wanted to thank you for joining me today. You've written an incredible book that is about to be released. Am I right? This book is like literally, I think this week. Is that correct? It's, that it's being released. So, and that book, tell us about, first of all, just tell us, Dr. Dr. Mishi, welcome. And just tell us about your book. Let's start right there with your, with your book that you're about to release. And then we'll dive into the content. Oh, sounds great. Well, wonderful to be here with you, Carolyn. And yes, being with a fellow cognitive neuroscientist is, is a joy. <laughs> We don't get that chance all that often no. uh, outside of our day-to-day lab yeah. work. So the book that I've written is called Peak Mind. And you can see it kind of right there. Yeah, there it is. There it is. And, I have the um, PDF of it, so I could otherwise I'd hold it up. <laughs> and, you know, the motivation for writing this book comes really to bring the knowledge we've gained, the discoveries we've made out of the lab and more accessible for all of us. As you mentioned, the work that I do, I'm a neuroscientist, cognitive neuroscientist, and I study the brain's attention system. So a lot of the work initially in my lab was just regarding the basics. How is it that attention is organized? What are the structures in the brain that support it? But then we started learning that even though attention, which probably everybody listening to my voice knows this, it's an incredibly powerful brain function. We all want to be able to pay attention. And we know that when we do, things can go quite well. And when we don't, things can become problematic. But what we were learning in my lab is that, you know, though attention is powerful, there are things that are part of our everyday human experience that are essentially like kryptonite for attention. And they can really degrade and deplete it. Things like stress and threat and poor mood. And so my interest really was in figuring out how we might be able to train the brain to pay better attention. And in particular, as you mentioned, you know, I work with groups like high demand soldiers and firefighters and elite athletes and medical and nursing students and just even regular old undergrads, but everybody's stressed. All of us are are stressed. And it's not just that we don't want to experience some of these difficult emotions. It's that we have to function at our best in the Mm -hmm. midst of them. So if you think about it, you never would want a surgeon to lapse or a judge or a lawyer to lapse in their attention. You certainly wouldn't want a soldier to not know where his or her attention is. And that kind of relates to all of us. Moment by moment, the way we pay attention really matters. And though attention is vulnerable, there must be ways to train it. And that's what I became very curious about. So the book was essentially my journey through that. And what we came through, came to understand is that there are some solutions that work quite well in protecting attention from this these kryptonite states. And I wanted to just share that with as many people as possible so that all of us can benefit from that knowledge. Oh, and you did that you've done that so well. I've almost finished reading your book and it's it's brilliant from beginning to end. And oh, thank it you. Really, it's it's a very good way of understanding something that's absolutely critical. I often say, and I'm sure you've heard this said before, that you know what we pay attention to grows. And what you think about the most grows and the whole quantum Zeno effect. And so people, so my audience has heard me talk about those things. So I, I, you can dive in and really teach us more about the whole science behind it. And, and then yeah. the book is very accessible, very readable, even though it's based on tremendously deep research and years of research. Yeah. You know, you're talking from a lot of research and that's so important. That's not just assumptive things. These, this is reality. This is like hardcore science that you come from. And that's why I have so much respect for your work. So t- tell us a little bit more about, I'd love to start by you 
to talking talking to the sort of maybe the neuroscience of attention and yeah, the brain yeah. and that kind of thing. And then I'd love to at some point in our conversation pivot to the work that you have done because you've worked with the Pentagon, you've worked with people in very high stress situations, yeah. um, soldiers, high performing athletes. You know, they are under phenomenal pressure and have to pay the right kind of attention at the right time. So I'd love us to at some point pivot to that as well. But let's start with some of the yeah. science because it's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the first thing I would say is that when we think about attention, and I thought about this a lot during sort of early in my career, is what is this thing that the brain does? And why do we even have an attention system? And when you dig kind of deeper into the evolutionary history of it, it really served to solve a big problem that the brain had, which is that there's just far more information in the environment. And I'm talking about like our way, 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 way back ancestors. So now there's really far too much in the environment, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> there's so much happening in our environment that the brain could not fully process it. And we need to be able to process it to be able to interact with the environment, to survive, to thrive. And so attention became a solution to subsample the external environment. Mm. And by that, I just mean you can't take it all in. So let's interrogate bit by bit to try to piece together what's going on around the individual, the organism. And there are many different ways that we might subsample anything, right? I mean, you mm -hmm. might do it based on the type of information. So for example, an animal in those very early ancestral days, knowing that, oh, on, you know, in this part of my immediate environment, I'm likely to be able to find food. And over here, I'm likely to get eaten. So I've got to <laughs> avoid it. And just, it's like in the nature of the, the content may direct your attention. The other thing we could do is direct our attention just based on when in time things matter. So can I reflect on the past or consider the future? Or do I really need to pay attention to what's happening right now? Because mm -hmm. I need to be alert and vigilant regarding what's happening right now. And then finally, we can really guide our attention having to do with our goals. What is it that we want to achieve? And that goal could be as simple as I need to get from point A to B or you know, I want to be able to write my first book. I mean, it can be quite complex or quite simple. And all of these just show us that these are different ways we can, we can take a slice out of what's being experienced and make more sense of it. So it ends up that for each of those kind of ways of digging into our, our environment, be it internal and external, there are mm -hmm. specific brain subsystems. Because it ends up that attention is, is really, I think of it as a fuel. It is. It is a cognitive fuel, but it ends that. up fueling a lot more than just thinking. We need our attention to think, to make decisions, to deliberate, et cetera. But we also actually need it to regulate our emotions, to ensure that our responses and behaviors, especially as they come to our emotional expression, is proportionate and appropriate. Mm -hmm. And we need our attention to connect with other people. I mean, we direct our attention toward other people. We pick up what they're showing us you know, in our in our environment. So anyway, just to say this, it's an incredibly complex set of things that attention mm -hmm. does. And it's it evolved for this reason of helping us sample the environment. And so maybe it'd be helpful if I just kind of dig into some of the three, you know, the three main subsystems of attention. Beautiful. Um, which, as you, you recall from reading the book, are, are really important as we think about the solutions. Good. So, Go so the very first system of attention is really what probably most people think about when they hear that term, focus. And when we say focus, I think what we really mean is privilege some information and disregard other information. There's something to be central to what you're doing and other things that you should not worry about. So for example, right now I'm looking at you, my, my focus is on you and your lovely face and not like, you know, whatever might be happening outside the door right now. That's not yeah. what I'm focusing on. So the metaphor I like to use for this focusing system is formally called the, the orienting system of, of the brain. And the metaphor I like to use is like a flashlight. So just like a flashlight, let's say we're in a darkened path or a darkened room, you know, here in Miami, we've got beautiful beaches. We want to go for a walk. Mm -hmm. We use that flashlight to guide our way. And wherever it is that that flashlight is pointing, we get better information, clear, crisp information. Everything else is sort of blanked out. The same thing goes for our attention. And it's kind of amazing because it functions in a very similar fashion, though the environment is not changing. Even if I keep everything in my environment static, mm -hmm. if I just decide where to pay attention, all of a sudden more will become 
available to me. And it's what you were saying before, you know, in some sense, what we pay attention to is our life. And so this capacity, this orienting system allows us to direct where we want our attention to be placed. And and if you think about it this way, it gives us access to information that's not just the external environment, but also the internal environment. So right now, if I said, what are the sensations that you feel on the soles of your feet right now? It's like, that's a strange question, yeah. but you can do it, right? You're yeah. Like, oh, Immediately, as soon as you, yeah. or, and as so soon as you can, said that, it drew my attention exactly. to my feet, which I hadn't or, paid any attention to, you know, while you were talking. So now exactly, I paid attention exactly. to my feet. So, which is kind of cool because nothing changed. You're still sitting as you were. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden we had access to other information. Now, it's not just sensory information from our internal experience, but our emotions, our thoughts, all of these things can be attended to and even our memories so if i said to you you know what did you have for a me- your last meal earlier today what was your last meal probably that was not on your mind but you could call it up in your memory and then you direct that flashlight toward it and all of a sudden you get access to that information so anyway not to belabor the point but just that's a very important system i have often found that it is the small things that make the biggest difference in the long run such as taking more mental health breaks during the day to improve my mind and brain health or making sure that I spend quality time with my loved ones. The little things we do all add up to the legacy we leave behind. And this is true for everything we do, including what we buy. This is why I love Bull & Branch. The company was started by a husband and wife team that wanted to create a textile company that cared about the details that would make their products last you'll feel the difference in their best-setting, beautifully crafted signature sheets. Bowl and Branch's signature hem sheets in white are my favorite. They are silky, smooth, super lightweight, get softer with every wash, and help me fall asleep faster at night so that I can wake up feeling refreshed and ready to take on the day. With Bowl and Branch, you never have to sacrifice quality. All their products look and feel luxurious at affordable prices. All their sheets are designed and manufactured for maximum comfort and durability. No wonder they stand behind their products and honor a 30-night worry-free guarantee if you're unsatisfied. I love that the team at Bolin Branch also focus on the quality of their manufacturing process. All their partners are family-owned businesses that share their same values and standards. And every part of the process follows some of the most rigorous certifications and audits in the world set by Fairtrade and GOTS. To experience an entirely new standard of comfort, visit bolenbranch.com. Get 15% off your first set of sheets with promo code Dr. Leaf. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com. Promo code Dr. Leaf. The link and details will be in the show notes. Do you mind if I interrupt you for one second? Oh, there? Because yeah, it's no, beautifully explained. Now, my audience is very used to me talking about, and I love how you've done it, shining on the flashlight. I talk about the non-conscious mind and how it moves into the conscious mind when we pay attention. So when you, so I talk about like a helicopter with a spotlight and whatever. So they, so you can really take that wherever you, you've explained that so beautifully. So I, I love it. The flashlight and then you can point it wherever you want. So exactly. So you can yeah. point it wherever you want, but you can also get it yanked, meaning pulled in various directions by stimuli that frankly, we are built to privilege. So things that are novel, things that are fear-inducing, threatening, self-related. Those are things, and if you think about what our social media feeds are, speaking of random stimuli, my dog is barking. I'm sorry if you can hear that. No, that's so cute. And we had mine barking earlier. I don't know if you heard that. And both I was ignoring that and you were ignoring that, but that drew our attention. So you, we both, you're demonstrating exactly what can happen. Exactly, right? So what I was just saying is that we can direct the, the flashlight external, we can di- direct it internally, but it also gets pulled by various kinds of stimuli. Mm-hmm. And that's really important to, to think about because oftentimes I'll hear people say, you know, aren't our attention spans just shorter and shorter? And I was like, no, evolution doesn't work at that scale. Our attention is not changed. I have to ask you a question about that as well. What's a comment on that? That is like everyone says, oh, I've got to do short podcasts because people's attention, every time they say our attentions have changed and you know people can't, I say, no, that's not what, what, that's not what it's about. So, oh, I'm so happy that you're covering this. Thank you. Go oh, to yeah, town no, with absolutely. us. So it's good. Not, so it's not that our capacity has changed, mm-hmm. but what's happening is that we're pitting these dueling aspects of 
our flashlight in against each other in some sense. Mm -hmm. So we may have the intention to orient the flashlight. We're holding it. We're directing it. You know, we're walking down our path or whatever. But now if you're on that same path and you hear a strange sound behind you, Mm -hmm. you're going to direct it there. It's going to get pulled by that sound. That's essentially what our social media feeds, our notifications, our alerts are. So we are essentially having to reorient our attention once it gets pulled away. And that's why it feels so exhausting. It's like, if it's supposed to be here, now all of a sudden it's over here, you got to get yourself back or you fail to get yourself back. And then you just don't get anything done, <laughs> done that you need to get done. But it actually brings us to the next system of attention, which is almost the exact opposite of the flashlight. So where the flashlight is sort of narrow, directed privileges based on the information, the second system, something called the formally the alerting system, mm-hmm. I use the metaphor of a floodlight. So it's broad, receptive, stable, and it's that system that selects privileges information that's happening right now. So, you know, we're not using our floodlight to to think about the past or the future. It's just what is occurring right now. And I'm not selecting like a certain part of space or a certain thought, whatever appears, that's what the floodlight is going to be receiving. And so if you're ever driving down or even walking down a street, you might see a flashing yellow light, right? Like near a construction site or a strange traffic pattern. I mean, what does that typically mean? It means pay attention, (laughs) but not in that directing the flashlight way but really this broad, receptive, vigilant orientation. And so just to get a sense that, oh yeah, that also makes sense. That's a different way we pay attention. We might call, if you want to geek out on our, on our technical terms, whereas the flashlight has very high signal to noise ratio. The signal mm-hmm. is really taking up a lot more mm-hmm. of our neural bandwidth than everything else we consider the noise. The floodlight has a very low signal to noise ratio because there's nothing that's privileged or not privileged. So quite, quite different. And we'll talk, I think we should talk a little bit about when we get to these practices that are the solution to depleted attention, how we can train both of those. Both of and those they're systems. both useful. Both are useful, both are needed. And so then there's a, just to, to round it out, there's a third system as well. This is something, and I know you've talked about this function on your, on your show, executive control. So mm-hmm. really executive attention is the way we talk about it. And we use that term executive just like the executive of a company. The executive's job is not to do each individual task that the organization has to engage in, but it's to ensure that the goals of the organization and the actions of the organization, moment Mm -hmm. by moment, are aligned. And when things are going not in the right direction, to course correct. So things like inhibiting behaviors Mm -hmm. that are not appropriate for the goals or updating. If there's new information that comes in, that means the goals need to change. Or even shifting. So I was doing this, or I'm in the wrong spot. Now I got to get back. That kind of thing. So these are all. And then, by the way, also maintaining the goal itself. All of that would be subsumed under this term, executive control. So that essentially all the different tasks we have to do. I use the the analogy, the metaphor of a juggler. It's like we've got to make sure all the balls in there are in the air, all the tasks are being engaged in, but with the right right kind of orientation that is goal focused. So your executive function is going to say, okay, that floodlight for now is not what's appropriate. That uh, The flashlight on this is not the right thing. Rather do that. It's kind of like making making you free focus. All those are perfect, stay there. It's management of the process. Absolutely. As a manager, and we need all three. I mean, as you can imagine, because in some sense, we wouldn't even know if if executive control is needed to get us back on track unless we had the floodlight in the first place to kind of know what the state of the situation is right now. Right. So they're kind of interdependent. And you're asking about the brain aspect. So it ends up that though these systems have to function really in a dynamic and and back and forth kind of manner in a coordinated kind of symphony, as we do complex things in the real world, neurally, they're actually antagonistic. So what I mean by that is when one network and, and, you know, now we can kind of get more elaborated. Each of these systems is supported by a particular set of regions in the brain all mm-hmm. of them involve the frontal lobe so that that's a key area for attention mm-hmm. but different sub-regions of the frontal lobe mm-hmm. and then parts of the parietal lobe and then other regions so but the important thing is that you know the networks that support each of these are basically going to vie for prominence which one is the most relevant and then they're actively inhibiting the other ones 
So if, if, and then we know this, right? So mm-hmm. if you're sitting there absorbed in something, let's say you're reading a book intently, flashlight is on the book, you're com- comprehending the information. Somebody walks into the room and starts talking to you. It's going to take you a minute to kind of notice what's going, what's being said and comprehend mm-hmm. it. Because essentially when that flashlight was heavily engaged and its activity was most prominent in the brain, it suppressed other things. So you're not mind wandering to some other, sometimes you are when you don't, when you when you actually aren't paying attention to what's on yeah. the page, but you are really focused on what's happening. You're not aware of your environment. The floodlight is actually getting a little dampened down. So a new sound comes in your environment. It takes you a minute to kind of, it'll break through, but it'll take a minute extra or beat extra. And so I think that's also important to keep in mind Very. so that we understand that, you know, there's nothing wrong with us when we have a little challenge kind of maneuvering through. It's because these brain networks have to, by design, not constantly be activated together that could could present a lot of problems you raise a really good point there amishi about the fact that we don't have to pay attention to everything all the time and i think a lot of people don't realize this from the multiple technological stimulation that we receive that it's like there's just so many things vying for your attention and we kind of almost feel pressure to pay attention i've had people actually ask me this and make these kind of comments that there's I, i need to know everything that's going on and it's kind of a, a sort of non-conscious, almost philosophical kind of, almost like a framework that has built that they're viewing life through, that there's so much I need to make sure I get it all. Meanwhile, it's not healthy to get it all. You need to know when to shift between the different types of attention. And this is why your work is so vitally important to help us to understand that. Right, right. And and the fact that it's difficult to try to get all that information, even if that's your goal, isn't a design flaw. It's not a personality flaw. It's mm-hmm, not nothing mm-hmm. wrong with you. It's actually not a, not a design flaw either. You're not going to be able to act on everything simultaneously. So maybe focus on the things that are most relevant for what you want to do. And actually to be aware that every time you put yourself, and this maybe goes to this other related topic, which is currently in our culture, this notion of multitasking. Oh, I was just about to ask that question. You see two <laughs> wise minds. I'm thinking, okay, where can, I, where can I ask that question? Because I have, I've written about this and I am... So excited about your approach. So, so important. Please, please yeah, take that away. Yeah. So, you know, I think that the first thing to say is I didn't say flashlights. I said we have a flashlight and we have a floodlight and we have a juggler. So we cannot, we, our brain is not designed. And there's many reasons for this. I mean, the fact that we're bound by one physical form, we can't mm-hmm. do 15 things at once. Mm-hmm. The attention system kind of co- collectively, all these three subsystems, is really not designed to do multiple attentionally demanding tasks at once in general. Mm -hmm. I'm just speaking in general. Now, if one of the tasks is not attentionally demanding, like you happen to be an expert at walking, so you don't really need a lot of attention to engage in walking. But if I put you at the edge of a cliff and it's dark, you're going to put all your attention into walking because you don't want to fall off that cliff. So Mm -hmm. even things that are well-learned, if we put ourselves in certain contexts, and this happens all the time with with driving, right? We're, we're just we're listening to our favorite podcast and all of a sudden it starts hailing and there's fog. You're going to probably have to turn off the podcast for a short period of time to maneuver through the challenge. So mm-hmm. anyway, the point is just that we don't have the capacity to, mu- capacity to do multiple demanding things at once. And so multitasking the term is actually a myth. The thing mm-hmm. we're doing. When Thank we, you. I've said that so often. I'm so pleased you say yeah, yeah. these things. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is the benefit of having somebody that has tried and true through this terrain. I mean, you know, yeah. you know this world. <laughs> but the way that I would say I think about it is almost like attention. Uh, or sorry, the human brain. You can think of kind of like a studio apartment. Mm. And this is also another way to really think about how information processing happens in the brain. It's not about one region lighting up or one mm-hmm. region being active. The entirety of the brain can get recalibrated mm-hmm. by where we pay attention and how we exactly. pay attention. So if you think of just like, think of all the functioning of the brain, like a studio apartment. And now let's say you want to do a particular task. Let's say cook an amazing meal. So you got a small space. You're probably going to use every spare open counter space to like do what you need to do, food prep, et cetera, et cetera. But then now let's say you need to take a work call and having food all around is probably not the best thing. So you're going to kind of move it all over, set yourself up with a nice space so that you can do a Zoom session, let's say, for work. (laughs) And then that's over and you're going to go back and like start finish your cooking. So you're going to bring everything back out and start. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's an example of two tasks and we're Mm -hmm. switching between them. 
And each Very one good. involves the calibration of the entire space. You can imagine if you're doing that over and over again, if I said every five minutes you need to go back and forth, you'd say, that's nuts. I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. And we could feel exhausted by doing that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the way to think about what you're doing to your mind when you try to put yourself in a multitasking situation, because you're not doing two things simultaneously. You are, in fact, task switching back and forth, and there are energetic costs to having to recalibrate the brain every time you switch. Beautifully explained. Yeah, yeah. And so that's the, the first thing to say is that it's real. If you feel like you put yourself in multitasking situations and you're exhausted, it's like, yes, mm-hmm. That's a very healthy response to that situation. And it doesn't even have to be, by the way, that the, the you could have, like, for example, a very straightforward thing that you want to do. The task mm-hmm. is write an email. But you have your phone on next to you, and there's a text message chain, <laughs> a group text chain. It's just like trying to plan stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's going to attract you. Or you're just going to pull the flashlight over there, and then you might get sucked in it. For some period of time, you're like, okay, now I get to get back on track. The juggler kicked in, executive control said, get back on track. So you're here. And then another bing comes up and you're back there. So even if the thing that got you into that text message was not anything big, it did pull you away and you had to pull yourself back. So Mm -hmm. these can be very small events that can have these cascading, really potentially damaging effects where you're more likely to make errors. You're going to be slow, kind of picking back up from one task and then going back and forth. And if you have to do anything that requires comprehension, depth of understanding, mm-hmm. depth of thought, it's not going to happen at the depth that you need. It's going to happen much oh, more superficially. So, mm, you know, I'm so pleased you spoke about this because yeah. in the way you've described it, because people so often will say, you know, if you ever talk about multitasking, I'm sure you've had this happen to you where they'll say, but I'm doing it all the time. I mean, I'm I'm looking after my kids and I'm making dinner. I'm this, I'm that. I'm, but there's, then I always try and explain to them, well, there's your non-conscious mind that's working 24-7, that's running multiple things at once, and it can do this. It can work in multiple levels. But we're talking about the conscious cognitive comprehension where you are required to do something like cook the dinner, do the Zoom call, those together. And, and, and you know the research, I'm sure, of that how we how intelligence actually decreases when you those people that think they're good multitaskers they have temporarily have lowered intelligence and when you recognize you can't multitask your intelligence etc will increase so i'm so glad you said that about the comprehension i mean a classic yeah, case in, yeah. in it's it's so important i'm right you you and i both write giant scientific journal articles those are the most comprehensively challenging. It's easier to write a book than it is to write a journal article. I don't know if you feel <laughs> that. But I always find that it's easier. So it takes, you know, it almost takes as long. But it, and, and you can't just go and dive in. You get into this train of thought, and then you've got to stop and do a podcast or go and write, work on a on a book that's completely different way of thinking. And I've had to say to my team, I'm sure you've done that too. That listen, I'm doing multiple things, but I cannot shift between going to a conference, getting into that mindset, lecturing to people then shifting to a business meeting, then shifting to writing a scientific journal and just do that in between. I can't just write a science journal article in between podcasts. You know, right. so that's kind right. of just and another example to emphasize what you're saying, that we, when it requires that kind of depth of attention, you have to shine the flashlight on one thing at a time to, that's to, get, right. to that's do right. it properly. I think, I think that's what you're saying, Am I, if I that's, understood you correctly. That is what I'm saying. In fact, that is what happens. Now, it's interesting what you said regarding the you know sounds a lot like my life like you're a busy person you're like overseeing this and that you're kind of oh yeah do this especially i would say as women often we feel like we have to be great at multitasking like you know i remember i remember once i was at a big meeting in india actually and i got this call from my it was actually a meeting with the dalai lama and i was staying at this hotel and i get a call you know the rest of my family's back here and I get a call from the, and the hotel's like, please come to the front desk. There's an international call for you. And I was like, terrified. You don't know what he wants to get a call from their family. No, no. So I'm like, they know why I'm there. They know it's my big day yeah. to give my talk. And I get to the phone. It's my son. Like, and he's like, almost like in tears, like mommy, mommy. I'm like, what is everything? Okay. It's like, I can't find my shin guards. <laughs> and apparently he was unconsolable. So my husband just let him call me. And of course I did know exactly where they were. So. Oh God. But the point is just oftentimes we cannot not 
meet the demand, right? We want to be writing the article, but there's other things that are required. And I think I would say at one level, we have to remember that we can oversee multiple things and know what's kind of checking in with them. The floodlight can be be quite robust, mm. but then when it's time to kind of zoom in, we have to zoom in. And, and that's kind of shifting. Remember the goal. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. That's your shifting thing that you, well, that the floodlight, like your son sort of took your attention away, but we've got the floodlight time and then we've got the flashlight time. Well, I and would then say the executive. Even, yeah, I would say that they're kind of even for some brief period of time, the floodlight is allowing us to check in with what's required. And then the, and just like if we were in a, again, in this weird traffic pattern or driving a car and we see a flashing yellow light, we're kind of checking out for what we need our attention for, right? It's staying mm-hmm. ready. But as soon mm-hmm. as we notice that there's something that is required, like, oh, there's children playing, we are going to direct our attention and kind of in that more focused manner to ensure that we behave properly. So that's the coordination piece. So the floodlight that oversees and then the flashlight that goes in. But then when it comes to that executive function, mm. that's the one that we've got to shift around. Mm-hmm. And that's and where we need our executive function to manage, help us manage that process. So that's got to be extremely well managed. Abs- absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I would say we cannot remove all the demands in our life to only do the thing we want to do. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important for us to know ourselves that when we have the moments, when we have the opportunity to monotask instead of multitask, to take those moments. I love that, the monotask. When you can turn off your mm -hmm. phone and when you can turn off your notifications on your email as you're working at your computer, do so. Exactly. Uh, So it's to be realistic, isn't it? It's to be realistic about how you're going to do that, that this is my life, so I've got to have a flashlight flashlight time, and then I'm going to have my executive control to help me plan. That's my, I mean, that's my uh, floodlight time, and that's my flashlight time, and Put that in the in your schedule. That's what I do. I literally say eight to twelve tomorrow. I'm writing a journal article. Do not bring me any unless there's an emergency. You know, so yeah. it's kind of like that's and helpful. that's executive control to try and help you manage it. That's right. Now, there's a big aspect to that that's important to keep in mind, which does bring us to the solutions that we devise. Lovely. For mm-hmm. What to do with attention getting depleted and degraded under stress, threat, poor mood, and these kind of circumstances that are part of love to talk about that. Part mm-hmm. of normal life, but actually are also much more pres- present under high stress intervals, right? So if you remember back to our days of being a student, it's not just one demand. It's like demand after demand after demand mm-hmm. over the course of the semester. As faculty, it's the same way. And then, by the way, as a student, you've got to take finals after that. Mm-hmm. Or what we noticed even with preseason athletes, that as they're preparing for the playing season, it's intensive practice sessions, right? Mm -hmm. They're learning the new plays and they're learning about their team and how they're going to function through the season. And then they get to go to camp where their kind of playing roles get determined, like whether they're going to be on the, you know, the first tier squad that's going to go out and play or not. So, and then of course there's competition season. So everything has this, like, there's this preparatory period and then there's like, game time in some sense. And what we found is that over that high demand interval, which is characterized by stress and mm-hmm. poor mood and exhaustion and lots mm-hmm. of demands, if we just had people come into the lab and do a series of attention tasks, and then we, came, we had them to come back four weeks later and do the same tasks, we saw a significant decline. In, in basically... All three of the systems, we saw a decline in how well they're able to focus, they're how, mm-hmm. we, how broadly they're able to notice even things like their own distractibility, mm-hmm. like when they're off task thinking about something else, and their working memory, their ability to maintain the goals was diminished. So high stress, for example, can have this sort of catastrophic, multifaceted effect on our this capacity. And that kind of brings me to the last part of what I wanted to tell you with regard to my own lab. You know, I mentioned that we do this basic research on the mechanisms and the brain function. And then we look at the costs of some of these circumstances. And then really like, how do you solve this problem? Mm. The actual, and that's what I love about what you offer even on this podcast. It's like, how can we make things better? How can we make our lives better? How can we function better? And how can we do things in a way that advantages mm-hmm. the limit, very real limitations of our brain? Exactly. 
And a very surprising <laughs> solution came into our labs. I was actually on the hunt. I'm like, what can we offer people over these high stress intervals, yeah. something they could do daily that wouldn't take too much time that could protect attention? And, you know, we know that there's a, f- a whole bunch of options people might choose, like brain training games, simple video games that you can play that, that train, or positivity, or relaxation, or the whole number of things, light mm-hmm. and sound devices, transcranial magnetics. I mean, like the list goes on and on and mm-hmm. on of all the things that you might do to advantage your brain. And we tried many of those and found that, frankly, they had maybe short-term acute effects or in the case of brain training, people got really better at the training games. But when you switch the the specific mm-hmm. carryover. Uh, circumstances, no, no generalizability, mm-hmm. right? No carryover. Right. Yeah, that's been a huge problem with it. So. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So nothing was really working. And then at the same time in my own kind of professional journey and personal life, I had, I was having my own kind of weird crisis of attention, not weird, but I was a new mom. Mm -hmm. My husband was in grad school. I was setting up my lab and it was just like Mm, this perfect storm of demands. And I felt like I had no, I was, my, my attention was like, uh, you know, like something that was slipping sand through my fingers kind Mm. of thing. And then when I looked at the field, my own field of research, cognitive neuroscience of attention, I'm like, okay, how do you get your attention back? Like, how do you just train the brain? I need it. <laughs> exactly. Nothing. Like, nothing that was convincing. No, it's unreal, everything. isn't it? It's unreal. I agree with you. There's a paucity of research, a total dearth. It's, it's, it's scary. Uh, yeah. And, you know, this was early 2000s when I was having this particular crisis of attention. There was really nothing I could find. And it was so funny because at that point I was at, at the University of Pennsylvania and a colleague of mine gave a talk. He's an affective, you know, emotion neuroscience expert. And he showed this, like, the, this seminar, he showed this picture, and it was just studies he'd been doing in his lab, inducing people into a very positive mood. So, you know, positive memories, positive music. Okay, sure. Here we see the brain activation profile for a positive mood. Then he'd have another group of people, or even sometimes the same people that would be induced into a negative mood. And his point was simply that, look, these states that we occupy with our emotions, they really are different. And neurally, they're different and they're tractable. We can actually see them. Of course, my question, given my own personal circumstance at that moment, was like, yeah, how do I get that guy, the negative one, to look like that one? Mm-hmm. So I, I literally raised my hand at the end of the lecture and I said that, like, how do I get this guy? I was at the back of the room. Yeah, like, yeah. How do you get this guy to look like that guy? And he, and he, I don't know if it was late in the, I mean, I was one of the last people to ask a question, but he just shouted out, like, meditation. And I was like, what? Mm, what are you talking mm, has about? Has he not read the <laughs> research? <laughs> there was no research, really no research. There's some studies in the 70s. Yeah, that's true. But meditation research has been right. quite there was recent. Very, very little research. And, you know, personally, as like, you know, you can see me, many of your listeners won't see me, but I'm an Indian woman. And like meditation had always been around in my family. It was part of my cultural heritage. And, you know, it was fine for my parents, but it was not something that I was interested in doing or ever thought I would do. And certainly I was never going to bring it to the lab. And so it was this really weird feeling. And I had a chance to talk to, and this was Dr. Richie Davidson, who now leads this very enterprising center, the University of Wisconsin. But I was able to talk to him a little bit about what they were finding. They were working with adept monastics, you know, monks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know the studies. Mm-hmm. And very interesting results. And And so he kind of opened me up that, you know, Check it out. Just check it out with regard to your own interests. And he knew nothing about my life, but the question was quite telling. How do you get the negative brain to look positive? So I I literally went to the pen bookstore and found a little book, Meditation for Beginners, and just it had a guided CD in it. And I said, I'm going to start trying this out. I'm going to practice. Just follow the practices. And what shocked me was, oh my gosh, they are talking about attention. Pay attention to breath-related sensations. Exactly. When your mind wanders, return it. So mm-hmm. I decided to commit to doing the practices myself and really started feeling quite different. I mean, the circumstances hadn't changed. I still had a toddler and a spouse in grad school and like lots of demands. But I felt more embodied and I felt more able to be present and in control of my own mind. And those things that I was having challenges with when my sort of personal attentional fuel tank was running on empty, like having challenges just keeping a train of thought in my head or regulating my emotion or feeling connected to the people that I cared for dearly, all of a sudden I felt like I was back again. Like my gas tank was, my attentional gas tank was full. 
And so that's when I said, you know what, let's bring this to the rigor of the laboratory and let's interrogate it. You know, am I just some individual case study that happened to have this benefit? And so that's sort of what launched us. And I wrote my very first grant on mindfulness, which is the form of training that I was receiving it was mindfulness meditation. I wrote my first grant that summer and just kind of didn't stop investigating it. Yeah. So it's really funny how science and our life can intertwine, but. Oh, totally. I always say <laughs> science is in a science and spirituality on far apart. They're the two sides of the same coin. Well, you know, it is quite, it, that point is quite interesting. And then when you mm -hmm. think about it, it's like, oh, these practices have been around for thousands of years exactly. and they're peace promoting. And I was like, oh yeah, wouldn't it be peaceful if you didn't feel like your attention is getting yanked Exactly, over exactly. And then at least I always talk about those as well. I don't know if how, if, well, what your take would be on this, but to talk about meditation and, and that type of you know, breathing and so on as brain preparation. Because when your brain is prepared, you can go into the kind of attention that you need. So you can then go beyond mindfulness. You can then go beyond those and then you can actually carry through with the cognitive work, the deep flashlight stuff. But right. you've got to, so you can't up, flashlight until you've got Yeah, that. and I would say mm. I was even more, it was along, along the lines of what you're saying, but I was really, you know, I'm still a basic scientist and I want to know what the mechanisms were. Yeah. So we have these models of these three systems of attention. And to me, it seemed like, oh, this is mapping onto some of these foundational practices of mindfulness. And, you know, when I actually think about what mindfulness is, and it's a term that's being thrown around oh, a lot. Oh, absolutely. And meditation. Out there, yeah. Meditation. So, <laughs> so let me just like define my terms because thank I you. Very good. So to me, meditation is a broad, frankly, cognitive training tool, you know, brain training tool, and it has to do with engaging in very specific practices to cultivate specific mental qualities. Mm -hmm. And so those practices from the world's wisdom traditions could exactly. be exactly compassion, could be transcendental states, or in the case of what I was actually doing with my little guided CD book mindfulness meditation and each of those has a different set of things that you do in a different set of states that you're cultivating and mindfulness in particular to me at least the way i understood it and the way that our lab is pursuing it has to do with paying attention to our present moment experience so again back to the here and the now mm -hmm. without conceptually elaborating like basically making a story about it or emotionally reacting to it it's a very specific way of paying very attention specific. right now. Mm -hmm. And it ends up that the practices, and I'll, I would love to tell you about just one specific one, mm, actually do. trains all three systems of attention. Mm, wow. Please tell so, us. Yeah. So it, like the, the, the one that, you know, and it has to do, we can use the breath, but I would just caution that it's not about manipulating the breath. It's not about diaphragmatic breathing. It's not about longer exhale than inhale. Those are all fine things to do. Great things to do, in fact. But mindful, in mindfulness practices that involve the breath, it, there's a, the goal is quite specific and different than breath manipulation. Because if mindfulness is about paying attention to present moment experience without a story about it, it's great to have sort of a target for your attention that is happening, unfolding right now. Breath is only this. right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And that is not very prone to making stories up about it, right? Like if you looked at an image, you might have a lot of things that you're going to say, or if you looked at another person or read a, even a phrase, you might want to conceptually elaborate. So raw sensory experience is a pretty handy way to ensure you're staying with the sensory experience. So the breath is so handy because it unfolds in real time. It's shifting and we don't have to actually control it for it to happen. Now, if we had to actually pay attention in order to breathe, we'd be dead. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> so Definitely. Focus on something else, go on. Yeah. But it just happens. So the stance we take when we do a breath-focused mindfulness practice is we take an observational stance toward the breath. And, you know, what I guide people to do is just sit, comfortable, upright, alert posture. Notice yourself breathing. You can lower or close your eyes. You know, people can do whatever they choose to feel comfortable, but it really is a deliberate training time that you're going to devote to this practice and you know the very first step is just notice yourself breathing and find something that's very prominent in breath related sensations so it could be the coolness of air moving in and out of your nose or whatever you pick that and then essentially the next step is just take that flashlight direct it toward that target that's where you're going to hold your flashlight the goal is the executive control is saying your goal and you're choosing to take it on 
is to focus on that breath-related sensation very specifically, almost like a laser beam. You know, it could be wherever you choose on the in the body sensation. The second step is essentially floodlight. Notice when your mind wanders. Love it. And when that happens, not notice if your mind wanders. Notice when your mind wanders. It's like normalizing of the fact that the mind mm-hmm. is going to wander fifty percent. That's part of what it does. Yeah, our minds wander, and then. So first step, focus. Second step, notice. Third step, when you notice your mind has wandered away, redirect back to those breath-related sensations. And so you know, a lot of, simple, but so brilliant. Yeah. And I think that, you know, so in some sense, you see that we're directing the flashlight, we're engaging the floodlight, and our executive control is making sure everything is moving and going forward as it should. And, you know, our military colleagues, <laughs> it was funny when I described it this way, they're like, Oh, you're giving a push-up. You're giving us a push-up for our mind, a mental push-up. That's cute. Mm-hmm. And I and I thought that was a really cool idea Very because good. really we're doing reps of that mental push-up. Focus, notice, redirect. There's Very no. Good. We are not in a fantasy world where our mind isn't going to wander. It's going to. The, it's going the to win is when you notice you've wandered and then you redirect. Love it. So just I think that might help us kind of connect the dots of what we've been talking about. Oh, this totally! Kind of it's brilliant. Is, This is how we can train it. Yeah, it's brilliant. When you think of nutrition, I bet the first thing that comes to mind is how many calories you should eat to be healthy or what foods you should avoid. But our nutritional well-being is about so much more than just what we put into our mouths. Our diet plays a huge role in our gut microbiome, which in turn impacts our mental and physical well-being. Indeed, the science is clear. A healthy gut microbiome with good bacteria that help our bodies process food is key to a healthy lifestyle. This is also the case for people with type 2 diabetes. We are just now learning about the connection between the gut microbiome, health and type 2 diabetes and how important it is when it comes to someone's health, which is why I really am excited about Pendulum Glucose Control, which is the first and only medical probiotic that's designed to manage A1C and blood glucose levels through the health of your microbiome. Over time, people with type 2 diabetes can lose the gut bacteria that help them digest fiber and manage their blood glucose levels. This is one major reason why, for people with type 2 diabetes, diet and exercise alone are often not enough to manage it. The best approach emphasizes diet, exercise, and a healthy gut microbiome. So, start taking control of your glucose levels today. Try Pendulum Glucose Control for 90 days. If you're not satisfied with your levels, you'll get your money back. Visit PendulumLife.com to find out more and use the promo code Dr. Lee for 20% off your first bottle of membership. That's P-E-N-D-U-L-U-M-L-I-F-E.com. Promo code Dr. Leaf. The link and details will be in the show notes. That can be done on, in every aspect. So you're taking it from the med- you're talking about from the meditation, the actual act of meditation, but that can then be applied. Trans- I assume that's where you're going. It's going to be translated back into your everyday life. So you train yourself at that Absolutely. basic level and you, you're going to get those neural predictive pathways going and train yeah, yourself. And it takes was, time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we had no idea if it would work. We didn't know if it was going to be more like brain training games where it would be great when you're focusing on the breath. But now if it's focusing on the email or our conversation partner, we fall apart. We don't fall apart. In fact, there is a generalizability. So what we did was sort of the opposite, right? We had people do this practice by themselves, and then we interrogated it as a function of bringing it into laboratory-based tasks. So the training context and the testing yeah. context, very different. And we see beneficial effects on our tasks and our experimental tasks. Wow, and that's amazing. But it is, it is kind of amazing that this mm-hmm. thing we can do privately, you know, we're not doing it, as you said, to be Olympic level breath followers who cares if you can pay attention to your breath yeah but we do care when we can pay attention to our partners we can we do care when we can pay attention to what's happening around us i mean all these are consequential for our lives absolutely and and if i hear what you're saying correctly is that you know the 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 you you bringing in a whole self-regulatory aspect and a lot of the work that i've done is looking at teaching people to manage their minds which is basically self-regulation which is basically what you're describing so you're basically focusing on the flashlight then you are noticing when you go back into the floodlight and then you're using executive control to bring it back again. One of the, I'm sure you, you know about this, but as a clinician, when I don't practice anymore, but I practiced for 25 years. And one of the things that I researched while I was practicing 
was this whole carryover thing. It's one of the biggest problems of therapy, whatever mm -hmm. kind of therapy, is the carryover into everyday life, the generalizability that you were talking about there. Yeah. And yeah. that the key issues that, and you know, when you mentioned about all the brain games and those things, I've written about this too, that these they we all thought that those were the solution. And you remember the, the time when that was punted by every single person. This was but the, the research didn't pan out. It didn't work. The generalizability wasn't there. It was wasn't specific enough. But but so in other words, it had to go big. It wasn't the technique, it was the system. So yeah. I talk about systems for mind management. You're talking about the systems for 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 basically getting ourselves ready to do mind management correctly. Because if you don't have the preparation, and now I see your work. How does it help me understand my work so much better? Because it, I can see, because I always tell people, if you don't prepare your mind and your brain and your body, your psychoneurobiology, you're not going to be able to carry that through and have the generalizability carried over into your daily life. And that takes that time and that effort. So, I mean, I get what you're saying. And I know you and I could have a whole neuroscientific five hour, probably hours. And I'm looking forward to the day that I can come and talk deeply and see what the things that you're doing. But this, in turn, let's just let's just land this plane because it's beautiful what you've done. You said so. You've given us that tech. You've given us this concept, which is so much more powerful. You kind of it's the thing of you teaching us to fish versus just here's the quick fix, you know. And we live in a day where give me the five steps or give me the seven steps or give me the. I get asked in in an interview that's like three minutes long. How do you solve anxiety? You know, let's, you know that's not. You've got to, yeah. yeah, we've got systems in place. And when the systems are in place, then you add the techniques to the system. And that's when, and you do that over time. And that's when the generalizability and carryover and things will happen into your life. So I love that you're teaching the, the concept of the system of the flashlight. Oh, the, yeah. And, and I, mean, I think that the, the key is just the brain is no different than the body. Nobody would even think that you could do something in five minutes that would transform your body. Exactly. Why do we think that we can With do something brain. in our mind and permanently yeah. transform it? So really, that is, brain that's an, I agree with you. Sorry to interrupt you there, but that's an argument that I have brought up so many times is that we all get to train to be an athlete or to be a, you know, whatever that you professional. We don't even have to do it professionally, just to be a fit person. Yeah, just Exactly. Just to go and train at Orange Theory or go and learn yeah. yoga. I mean, it takes time. But it we, when it comes to the mind, we've got this this mentality that just give me the quick fix answer, give me the drug, give me. We've got to get out of that. We've got to realize we've got to work at this thing. Yeah. And so that's sort of, you know, to go back to the question you asked me at the outset of why I wrote this book, it, the subtitle of the book is Find Your Focus, Own Your Attention, Invest 12 Minutes a Day. I love that. And what we ended up finding out through about eight years of work is, okay, mindfulness training is effective. And the amount of time for people to have a minimum effective dose is about 12 minutes a day. Beautiful. So, you know, in some sense, it's like, would going for a walk with my dog make me more physically fit? Probably not. Maybe do a 5K. That's going to help. So it's setting the bar in a way that is manageable, I think, for most people to take on and that we found in the laboratory actually benefits people. Oh, that's amazing. And, you know, that, that really goes to, because uh, with my research, I've shown that you need to work between 7 to 45 minutes a day on the actual hardcore work, but you need to build in a preparation time. And I've always said sort of somewhere in the region of three to 10 minutes. Now you've told me 12. So that's, you know, here's the science now. Your brain, your yeah. brain prep needs to be at least 12 minutes. And that makes so much sense to get your neurophysiology working like it should. And then that means you can move into the hard work. And you know, I'm just thinking immediately, you've probably seen this in your research already. But, and I'm jumping ahead of myself probably because you're probably going to say this. But if you do that preparation, what follows, the, it's, a, it's a totally different level versus if you don't do this 12 minutes of meditation or whatever. I mean, the, the 12 minutes of time that you invest in your attention, your attention work. Yeah. Then you're not going, it's going to be kind of messy, the rest of it. So that becomes very critical in helping to get the carryover and the benefit from whatever you do after that. Yeah. You know, we haven't looked at the uh, acute effects so much, but what I was telling, what I was saying is, remember what I said at the outset, if you're under a high stress interval, the most robust finding is your attention is going to decline. Yeah. Yeah. That four to eight sure. week interval. So what we find in people that practice this 12 minutes a day, about three to five days a week is they don't decline. They stay stable. Beautiful. And if they practice more, they can actually even benefit under a high stress circumstances. So they're actually going up when their colleagues who aren't getting the training or aren't engaging in it go down. Oh, I, I'm so, so excited about what you've said because you saw in our clinical trials as well that if you, when you work in a sustained way daily, you can see every, literally every 
as, as sort of over nine week periods, but every three weeks, but over a total of sort of 63 days, you're seeing massive behavioral changes on a so- social, cognitive, emotional, behavioral level. You know, so it's the, those, that, re- that neural wiring takes time, that rewiring, that getting, and you can do it. Neuroplasticity is a reality. That yeah, we, yeah, and we've, you know, and we push the envelope. We started yeah. out with eight weeks of training. Then we said, okay, what about four weeks? And what about two weeks? We found that two weeks is too short. You know, we just, even if the training they got was the exact same program and they were doing 12 to 15 minutes a day, it was too short of a too time. Too short. Down. They needed more than four, four weeks and four yeah, weeks four plus. Weeks was when we were starting to see benefits. Eight, of course, still benefits. Longer than that would still benefit. But that sort of provides the boundary conditions. Like, what's a reasonable amount of time? We'll ramp up, learn the practices ramp up to about 12 minutes a day. You know, people always say, well, I mean, how do I, how do I get start? When should I practice? And I'm like, practice when you practice, like just like physical activity. I, yeah. The only way Instead of Facebook, is, go and do this. <laughs> well, right. And what I usually say to people is like, yoke it to a habit that you already have. So that's just, some, that. you know, that's just a good, basic yeah. tip. Like, and I think that the main thing for me, uh, just to return back to the motivation for the book is we have answers. You know, we now know those questions I had many years ago about what do I do for people? Attention is so powerful, but it's really vulnerable. Is there something I can give everybody to do every day? There is. Not even every day, maybe five, you know, four to five days a week. And I see beneficial effects and I found it. And so oh, I wanted beautiful. to just give access to it and actually help people understand that even though the term mindfulness meditation is used a lot, it's it's really a specific form of cognitive training for our attention. And as we said at the outset, you know, what we pay attention to is our life. So why exactly. would we want to advantage that? Oh, no, I th- thank you for your phenomenal work. It's it's brilliant and, I, and outstanding. It's motivated me to carry on doing what I'm doing, which I don't need much motivation to do that anyway, because I love it. But just to get <laughs> that, just to get what the, to, I, I get what you're doing. It's fantastic for people to understand that if you get into these understand the systems of how your mind can change your brain. And if you bring those practices into your yeah. life, you can really find those changes. I found it fascinating that you found that two, four week envelope, that two weeks was too little. We found that as well. We found mm-hmm. that, you know, you're going to get these changes, these gamma peaks and things that are changing and certain behavioral changes. But we would even get our subjects going from, I am depression and I'm completely hopeless. But sort of the third, fourth week, they were saying, I'm not depression. I'm depressed. Be- I'm not, I'm depressed because of, but I'm worse. And because I'm seeing why I'm depressed and realizing that there was this, this, at that point, there was almost like a chasm. And I wonder if you saw this, there was a chasm between, I know I'm not that anymore. And I know that's where I want to go, but how do I get there? And so that those two narratives, and that's where people often get stuck. And this is what I've found. And I'd be interested to hear if, if this is kind of what you saw too, that when we got our subjects to go for another two cycles, so sort of get up to a 63 day, nine week kind of point, give or take a few days we started seeing that there was sufficient inner energy in that new neural pathway to then have a, to create the behavioral change. So we started seeing the social, cognitive, emotional. So it wasn't just, I know why I've got the because, but I've actually got the because, and this is how I'm going to move forward. So therefore, when I'm triggered, I can move into that next phase. So the carryover, the actual changes in one's life. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's, I, I see that the work that you're doing playing a vital role in getting a, a, a anyone, whether it's someone who's in therapy or whether it's just us day-to-day, everyday life, because, you know, there's, there's, we've, we've got to live, getting ourselves prepared to get into everything that we're doing. And that's what you're offering. You're offering the science behind how to get ourselves neurophysiologically prepared to keep ourselves focused in on what we're doing so we can be more efficient at doing that. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. Have I kind of summarized what you, what you <laughs> understood what you are doing? Absolutely. I know. Well, this has been absolutely phenomenal. And I want to thank you so much for your work and for contributing to this field and for the changes that you've made and all the best with your amazing book. Where can people get hold of you and find, get the book into their hands? Yeah. I wish I had one to show, but you've got one on the back there. So, <laughs> so yeah, the book is Peak Mind and people can learn all about the book, where to get it, as well as the work in my lab. If they remember my first name, Amishi, A-M-I-S-H-I dot com. Fantastic. We'll put all those links in the show notes so people can go and get a, get a hold of the book and find out more about what the work you, all the work you're doing. And I want to thank you for your t- spending this time with us today and sharing your incredible knowledge and helping so many people. So thank you. Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. 
I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.